Well, it's great to be back here this evening. Again, I want to thank Pastor Danny for the kind invitation and privilege to be able to speak to you. And what we want to do tonight is to go through and give you some apologetics to, to teach us some of the answers, ways in which we defend our faith. Uh, just before we do that, and Pastor Denny asked if I mentioned some, something about our new project, but I first of all go over just a little bit about the Creation Museum. I know many of you were here this morning and heard about that, but the Creation Museum is located in the greater Cincinnati area. It's actually in northern Kentucky. Uh, we're on the bottom loop, the bottom part of the 275 loop that goes around Cincinnati. It goes through northern Kentucky. So Cincinnati Airport is in Kentucky, not Cincinnati, Ohio. You follow that? And we're just near the airport in the greater Cincinnati area in northern Kentucky. So just so that you got all that right. Uh, but the, the Creation Museum, we're actually within a one-day drive of two-thirds of America's population. And then you've got parts of Texas and the rest of America. But <clears throat> it's a very easy place to get to. We have animatronic dinosaurs, animatronic people, live animal displays. Uh, we have a number of theaters, a planetarium. Uh, incredible planetarium. In fact, we have a brand new program on comets because Comet Ison is coming through uh, this year. In fact, our astronomer just took a photograph of Comet Ison uh, yesterday through a telescope, and I'm going to put that on my Facebook tomorrow. We have a special effects theater just like uh, Universal Studios, you know, where you blow water and air and vibrate, and, you know, when Noah's Ark comes out of the screen and people fall on their knees and repent. But uh, <laughs> then, of course, the difference with what we do is that we tell the truth. Uh, then you have uh, all these life-size exhibits, actually every ticket is a two-day ticket because it takes so long for people to get through. So most people spend two days there and uh, go through the whole place. You can even go through 1% of Noah's Ark. You can talk to Noah and he will answer your questions. Uh, we have an incredible resource store, a brand new dragons exhibit that just went in, and then a world-class insectorium. It really is world-class. And the insect display is as good or better than what you'd see anywhere else in the world. The insects are phenomenal, the way they're displayed, our animatronic scientist, our beautiful gardens, and our petting zoo. We have some hybrid animals, and the reason for that is uh, we're teaching people, for instance, when it comes to two of each kind on board Noah's Ark, Noah didn't need to take all the varieties of horses and the zebras and so on. So we have the, some of the zebroids there. We have, for instance, a zedonk, and we have a zorse, you know, cross between uh, a, a zebra and a horse and uh, other crosses. We have uh, llamas, alpacas. Let's tell people understand that you can have a great variation, different species and so on within a kind. And then our incredible zipline course we have there, you have youth groups, young people, all sorts of people love that and the challenge course. It's the biggest and best in the Midwest. Uh, it's phenomenal, 27 ziplines. And then the, the new project, Ark Encounter, now, if, if all the funding goes ahead and if everything happens with this, and of course, you know, that depends on the Lord. We've been working on this for a few years, but the plans are all done. The engineering, architectural plans that are very, very complicated. To rebuild Noah's Ark out of wood the size of the ark, like a real boat with three floors of exhibits that people walk through. It's about four times the exhibit space of the Creation Museum. And we've master planned, this won't be built at first, but master planned an entire park to go with it. Uh, because you need to put in the infrastructure for what you're going to do in the future. And the Lord has led us to 800 acres on Interstate 75. Interstate 75 is probably the second busiest north-south interstate in America, running from Canada right down through uh, Florida. 
800 acres right there at an interchange on 75. Sort of unheard of to be able to get land like that. Beautiful rolling hills, uh, 200 acres of it have been sort of cordoned off for this particular project. We've even pegged out where Noah's Ark will be going. There's the size of Noah's Ark compared to a football field. Uh, thought you'd be interested in that. And phase one, I thought I'd let our head exhibit designer, our head design uh, director actually used to work for Universal Studios, worked in theme parks around the world. He took my script and turned it into the three-dimensional walkthrough you see in the Creation Museum, and he's the one designing all the exhibits for the Ark. But just to give you a little look, this is our 3D model that we've completed recently. It's a topographic model, all done to scale, and he'll share with you a little bit about what's on the outside. What's on the inside? A whole series of exhibits answering questions like, how do you fit the animals on the Ark? And, and what about the geology? And how did he look after them? And all all those sorts of things. But anyway, let's uh, just have a look at this. Hi, I'm Patrick Marsh. I'm the design director for the Ark Encounter Project. And today we're looking at a scale model of phase one of the Ark Encounter. Everybody comes into the park off of I-75, which is in the corner over there which leads directly into the parking lot. There, a tram or a bus will pick up the guests, take them along the pathway down into the valley and up to the next hill and drop them off. From there, there is a ticket booth and an entrance area and a highly themed pathway that guests would walk along as they come up to the lake itself. There is a little walkout point for the guests, a beautiful point to be able to stop and take photographs of the arc. It's designed the distance there to be able to get the whole arc into it. From there, they'll walk along the pathway, come up into what's going to be a construction site in the front of the ark. All kinds of things that Noah would be taking onto the ark, as well as lumber that's out there, trees that need to be cut up, etc. In that area also, we'll have a working saw, vertical saw, and a blacksmith shop, because we want to show that Noah was capable of using all kinds of equipment and things to be able to build this wonderful ark. The ark sits 12 feet off of the ground, and guests can actually walk below the ark itself and see the three keels that are there. Um, there is a pre-show theater that's underneath the ark that guests will go through, which will introduce them uh, more about the culture um, of the pre-flood society. They enter from the backside over here, and there's a queue line that they go through. That also is all about pre-flood society. The ark is three levels high. Each one of those levels has a kind of a different story as you walk through it. And behind the ark, we have many wonderful facilities. We have a animal actor stage where we can do a lot of presentation with special animals. Behind that, we have camel and pony rides for both adults and kids. Next to that, we also have a wonderful cafeteria facility, an outdoor eating area. And behind the ark, there will be a petting zoo in the future and also an exotic animal area. Out in front, this area along here, in the first phase, it will actually be a, an area that looks like the trees have been cut down with tree stumps and everything, look like Noah has used them for the building of the ark. Well, there you are. You see why you need to move to Kentucky now. Uh, people will ask me, when's that going to be open? Well, we're not really sure, but if everything goes ahead the way we're praying and trusting and with all that we've done and been an incredible amount of work for the last few years and stepping out in faith so possibly maybe we think it could be but we're not sure but we hope but prayerfully perhaps it could be um, I just want you to know I'm not giving you a date but uh, possibly early to 
2016. So we'll see. You can be praying for that. And by the way, the evangelistic emphasis of the ark is going to be what I sort of said this morning. And we're going to have a special theater that presents the gospel there uh, that as Noah and his family had to go through a doorway to be saved, so we need to go through a doorway. And that doorway is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it'll be an incredible evangelistic outreach. And then all the exhibits that people walk through... Uh, the research indicates 2 million people a year, and it'll probably double the attendance at the Creation Museum, which is 45 minutes away from there. And so a lot of people will come and probably spend the whole week just at both places. Uh, that's what we envision is happening. So that's something to look forward to. But don't wait until that's open to come to the Creation Museum, because it might be millions of years yet. We don't know. Uh, but, so come to the Creation Museum, and then come back for the Ark Encounter. Well, what I want to do tonight following on from this morning, and I think people that were here this morning got an understanding, as, as I gave you, how important the book of Genesis is to the rest of Scripture, to all of our doctrines, to the Gospel, that history is foundational, whole of the rest of the Bible. And I talked about uh, the fact that I believe that those people who add millions of years evolution to the Bible are really undermining the authority of Scripture. But what I wanted to do tonight was to go through and show how we answer questions. Because people have a lot of questions that they ask. And if we don't do what, for instance, we're told in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense or to give an answer, you know, what happens is, and particularly for our own children, if they say, well, mum and dad, I heard that, uh, you know, that Noah couldn't fit the animals on the ark. Or how do we know there's a God? Or who made God? And if we say, well, don't worry about that, just trust in Jesus the fact that we don't answer those questions often causes doubt that leads to unbelief. So it's important to be able to defend our faith. I want to show you, first of all, how many of you have heard of a man called Ray Comfort? A number of you? Oh, great. Well, Ray's a good friend of mine, and Ray Comfort has a ministry in, called Living Waters in California, and we recently premiered his new video at our mega-conference, and it's called Evolution Versus God. I want to show you a couple of excerpts from that. Is, has anyone here seen the new video? I see a few hands. Okay. The rest of you, by the way, I would love to see every high schooler get a copy of this DVD. I'd love to see every university student. I'd love to see every adult watch it. I'd love to see everyone, for all the young people in our churches, give them a copy of this DVD. And actually, we, we, it, it's out there available. I think it's $5. Uh, it's uh, fairly inexpensive because we want to get this into the hands of people. And what, what Ray did was he went to... Uh, three universities in California, and he spoke to students, science majors in particular, spoke to university professors, and then he also spoke to one of the leading atheist spokespersons in America, and he asked them questions about the evidence for evolution. And one of the things that you find, it's interesting, the answers that they gave are the same answers I've been hearing such people give for years. Here's what you will learn from this. People who believe in evolution, and these students who believe in evolution, and even the, pre pre the professors, you know what? They believe in evolution because they believe in evolution, because they heard it's true, because they read it in a textbook, because they heard it from a professor, because that's how, how they know it's true, because they saw it on TV. They don't know why they believe what they do. Most of them haven't got a clue, and they just regurgitate what they've been taught. You know what that should really say to us? Look, if we, are to, if we equip ourselves and we equip our kids and our young people, if we equip them with answers, they're going to run rings around these people out there. And they'll be able to go out and witness to them and be uh, a, a force out there for the Lord Jesus Christ, as we should be. So let me show you a couple of excerpts from this and then we'll run into going through some of these answers. I'm going to trust what those experts did. 
those experts uh, came up with. I have a strong trust in evolutionary ideas based on the evidence presented. Can you think of any observable evidence for Darwinian evolution, a change of kinds? I haven't seen it myself, but I believe what the textbooks tell me about it, so. so you've got faith in the experts? I have faith in the experts, yeah. I guess similar to how religious people have faith that God actually exists, I have faith in the experts knowing what they're talking about. The scientific method is, must be observable and repeatable, so could you give me one piece of observable evidence for Darwinian evolution? Okay, I would point to, as one great example is, look at the genetics of the stickleback. What's that? Uh, so stickleback fish are a very interesting collection of species that were recently isolated after the end of the Ice Age. What did they become? They're, they're various species of sticklebacks. They stayed as fish? Well, of course. Human beings are still fish. Human beings are fish? Why, yes, of course they are. How long did that take? A couple of billions of years, millions. A couple of millions? How is that observable? It's not. We came out of the ground as a mammal, and one mammal created... Come out of the ground? Didn't we come out of the sea? Huh? Well, initially in the beginning, we came out of the ground and the sea after the great destruction of the... the... So do we have lungs or gills when we came out of the sea? You want to know something? Those that were in the sea, I guess, had gills, and those that were on land had lungs. But if we came out of the sea, we had gills in the sea. You want to know something? Who knows that we came out of the sea or we came out, we evolved from mammals? So you don't know? Huh? Of course I don't know. I'm accepting that they did their science correctly. Could you give me an example of Darwinian evolution, not adaptation or speciation, but a change of kinds? <laughs> These are changes of kinds. They're still fish. They're distinctly different fish. We have thousands of examples. Give me, can you give me one? I can give you, I can give you thousands. Just one. For instance, I would say, uh, look at Lenski's experiments with bacteria then. So what did the bacteria become? The bacteria are still bacteria, of course. So that's not Darwinian evolution. That's not a change of kinds, is it? It, it is a change. It is a change in the genetic makeup of the bacteria, which but is still bacteria. So what did the bacteria become? Uh, a new kind of bacteria. Still bacteria, there's no change of kinds. To summarize, the observable evidence that you give me for Darwinian evolution is bacteria becoming bacteria. No, it is bacteria acquiring new metabolic capabilities. You said before that there, are, there is lots of evidence for evolution. I just want one observable evidence for Darwinian evolution, yeah, no, just one. But I gave you some, you don't want Not that. some, I want one. Wait, you don't want that. I want one. Yes, I do, I'm pleading no, with you people. Said, you asked me to tell you, you asked me to tell you when I've watched one species evolve into another, isn't that right? No, one kind into another. There's 14, is it 14 different definitions of species? So I want a change of kind. When you're talking about kinds or change in families, you're, you're actually talking about about macroevolution, you're talking about um, uh, changes on the level of, that separate, say, cats from dogs. So could you give me any examples of Darwinian evolution? Well, uh, when you say examples of that, then you have to sort of look at over a longer time frame. Now, what I want to do, I want to do this, because the main evidence for evolution presented in our school textbooks and universities is exactly what they were talking about there. Finches with different sized beaks, or bacteria, or the stickleback fish, different species. And I, I want to show you that that is not evidence for evolution. It's actually evidence against evolution if you truly understand what's happening. And what they're really doing is they're looking on the outside instead of looking on the inside. 
And if you look on the inside, you realize it's not evidence for evolution. But to do that, we have to understand something about uh, the information that builds the different kinds of animals and plants. And so to start off with, I'm going to answer a, a different sort of question, but it really deals with this issue of information. And so the question we're going to start off with is this one. Is there any evidence of an infinite God? There's lots of different areas that we could look at, but I want to look at one area in particular. You see, Romans 1.20 in the Bible says, if you don't believe in God, you're without excuse. It's so obvious there's a God. Let me give you an example where it's so obvious that there's a God. I'm sure you've heard of DNA, that molecule of heredity. Uh, DNA makes up our, our chromosomes. We have these units called genes, and, and we have there all the information that builds us. We're made of trillions of cells, and in nearly all of our cells, we have all the information that builds us. It's been estimated it will fill 1,000 books, 500 pages, close type written. They now think that's way underestimated. But you see, DNA, when it was first discovered, was considered to be a molecule that showed that you don't need God. Back in 1953, there were two scientists, Crick and Watson, over in England, and these two scientists actually did the research to discover uh, an understanding of the mole molecule of DNA because they didn't believe in God, and they were atheists, and they thought that they could prove that there was no God and life is just built on chemistry. And this is the original model of DNA that they actually put together. It's in a museum in London. There it is enhanced a little bit for you. And when they were able to discover this, and when news headlines were made back then in 1953, they actually made the statement, see, we've shown life is just chemistry. There is no God. In fact, at the 50-year anniversary of the discovery of DNA in 2003, the Telegraph in England had an article about this, and they quoted Crick, who died, I believe he died the next year, I think. He was 86 years old back then. He was an atheist. But they said, the scientists who launched a revolution with the discovery of the structure of DNA in Cambridge 50 years ago have both used the anniversary to mount an attack on religion. What they mean is an attack on Christianity. Speaking to the Telegraph, Crick, 86 years old, said the God hypothesis is rather discredited. Instead, he says, his distaste for religion was one of his prime motives in the work that led to the sensational 1953 discovery. I'll tell you what's interesting is a few years after, a few years after the discovery of, of uh, DNA in 1953 and 1981, Crick actually wrote a book talking about, you know, life coming from outer space. <laughs> you, know, you know the reason I believe that that is so? It's because we now know something about DNA that they didn't know back in 1953. You know it's not just chemistry. See, there's a piece of rope. That rope has red and green beads on it. Actually, those red and green beads spell out the word help. You, you, you know that, right? No? If you know the Morse code, they spell out the word help. If you don't know the Morse code, they're red and green beads on a rope. Now, I use that as an analogy. I wanted to show you. DNA is like, and, and see, one of the things I like to do is explain things in a big picture perspective so we understand so we can explain it to others. DNA is like two pieces of rope, and you have these beads on a rope, red and green beads, base pairs, molecules, but we're not going to get into all that detail. But they write all the information that builds us. Now, think about this for a moment. If you're going to have all these red and green beads on a rope, then you need to know what the code is to understand all the information, correct? 
and the information, the beads have to be arranged in the right way according to the code, and the code has to be there to read the information. Just like when I open up my Bible, I can look in here and I see ink on the page, but the ink is arranged into letters, the letters are arranged into words, and the words into sentences, and because I know the English language and I know the code, I can look at that and I can get the information, but the information is not in the ink. By the way, information is immaterial. That's a whole other interesting issue in itself, but we won't get into that tonight, okay? Now, when I went to university, I remember my professor saying, look, students, you're asking me how life evolved. You don't need God. You just happen to have, have the right conditions uh, millions of years ago. He said, look, let's do an experiment. So he got the letters of the alphabet and cut them up, and he put them in a hat, A to Z. And then he passed the hat around the class and had students pull out letters. Three students in a row pulled out B followed by A followed by T. B-A-T, what's that word? Uh, uh, bat, wow, we got a word by chance. Given enough time, we could get another word. Given enough time, we could get another word. Now he says, as improbable as it seems, sort of like winning the lottery, there's always the possibility you get the right combination. It just so happened millions of years ago, you get the right combination of molecules. In other words, eventually you could get the Encyclopedia Britannica, if you like. Uh, so it happened by chance. It happened once millions of years ago. Bingo, that's how we got life. Let's go on. I would love to go back and ask my professor a question. Excuse me, professor, is that word a word to a Dutchman, an Englishman, a Chinese, a Japanese? It's only a word to somebody who already has the language. See, those red and green beads on a rope, that only spells out help if you know the code, the Morse code. Now, there are scientists who actually study what's called information theory. And there's a scientist in Germany, Dr. Werner Gitt, who's an information scientist, and he published a book in the beginning, was information. And here's what he said in that book, and it's a very detailed study on information. There is no known natural law through which matter can give rise to information. Stop right there for a moment. Matter can never give rise to one bit of information. By the way, do you know how much information is out there in, in the uh, living organisms that we have in the world? It's zillions of bits of information. But he says there's no natural law through which matter gives rise to information. And he goes on and says, a code system is always the result of a mental process. Codes only come from an intelligence. Information only comes from information. By the way, you know what that means? Life could never evolve by chance because life is built on information and a code. So how could it come about by chance? Just to help you understand how much information is out there in living things. Has anyone here counted the number of atoms in the universe lately? Actually, if you did, they estimate that's the number of atoms in the universe. That's a big number, isn't it? Really is a big number. Now, if you took one man and one woman from this audience, how many children could you potentially have without having two with the same combination of information? It's actually that number compared to the number of atoms in the universe. Do you realize we've got that sort of variability in the dog kind, the cat kind, the elephant kind, the human kind? You're starting to get the idea? I mean, life is just, there's just so much information. It's full of information. It's got this code system and this information. Now, if you're gonna believe in evolution, as they portray in the public school textbooks, matter has to produce life. How does it do that? It has to produce a code. No natural law anywhere in the world anyone's ever seen matter produce a code. Can't happen. Matter has to produce zillions of bits of information. Think about it. has to produce information that the code can read for different kinds of, 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 of animals and plants over millions of years to get all these new characteristics. You're going to evolve reptiles into birds. Reptiles don't have the instructions for feathers and, and so on. You get all this new information. People 
It should, this should be something that's so obvious, it should be just glaring at us because if matter has produced that much information in a code system, it, it, it just should be obvious out there. We've never seen it happen once. It can't. You know what DNA cries out? In the beginning, God. An intelligent designer, an infinite creator God, who made the code system and the information for life. Wow. Isn't it exciting being a Christian? Wow, there's five people excited. That's good. <laughs> I'm going to see if we can make it six and just keep going up from there and count that a success. Now, I know some of you are sitting there and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. If that is so, what would someone like Richard Dawkins say about that? I'm glad you asked me that question. Richard Dawkins, the ardent atheist, actually a, a number of years ago, this is many, many years ago, so this is a bit of a scratchy old video, by the way, just to warn the guys back in the AV area there. But Dr. Dawkins was asked a question that really, it, it, it's like this. Dr. Dawkins, can you give an example? We only wanted one. Just one, only one. Can you give an example where matter produces new information and gets added into the genome, added into the genes? Now, if evolution's true, it, I mean, this should be something happening all the time. Should be so obvious. So let's, let's have one, just one. I want you to listen to his answer. You have to listen carefully to understand it. So listen real carefully. Professor Dawkins, can you give an example of a genetic mutation or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome? Now, some of you might have missed it. So what I want to do is I want to play it again because it's my favorite part of the video because I, I really want you to hear the answer. It is extremely technical, it's difficult to understand, but I want you to listen to it. Professor Dawkins, can you give an example of a genetic mutation or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome? It's one of the rare times when I can say I agree with atheist Richard Dawkins. There is no example. Now, now, you might say to me, wait a minute, wait a minute, what would he say today? You said that was 20-odd years ago. What would he say today? I'm glad you asked me that question. How many of you have heard of the movie Expelled? You remember seeing the movie Expelled? Okay, I wonder if you remember this little bit. And I want to play it and, and for you now to consider it in this context. You see, what happened was Ben Stein asked Richard Dawkins a similar sort of question. He asked him a question, How, you know, is it possible there's an intelligence behind life? The intelligent design is responsible for life. Now, listen to what he says. This is a little softer, this video. So listen to what he says. What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization e evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. That's the answer. Aliens. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Here's an atheist starting to talk about aliens from outer space bringing life to Earth. Actually, Crick, who discovered the helical structure of DNA, he also spoke about that. Now, th then you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, if aliens evolved on another planet and that's how life got to Earth, 
where did those aliens come from? There had to be another planet with other aliens. I'm sure that would be the answer. And they had to bring life to that planet so they could develop aliens to bring life to this planet. Well, where did those aliens come from? I'm sure there had to be another planet with aliens. You know what? I think he'd be prepared to believe in the beginning aliens, but not in the beginning God. I think he believes in eternal aliens. Let's go on. What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, right. well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization e evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, th that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. Mm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but okay. that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as God. What do you think Therein is the possibility? Lies the issue. You know, my computer is playing up. These things are evil. <laughs> and I've got the Christian one, Max R. Christian, M-A-C. <laughs> but it's got the bite out of the fruit, so that's what the problem is. Well, anyway. <laughs> At least I don't have a PC, pagan computer. I don't want one of them. I don't know what it is with computers. Anyway, I'll ignore that. It wasn't supposed to. Uh, don't worry about it. Well, you know, what, you know what I would say? Here's the thing we need to understand. It's Richard Dawkins who has the blind faith. I've actually been to youth groups, and I've asked young people, do you believe in God? Yes, how do you know there's a God? Well, by faith. What sort of faith? Blind faith. No, it's not a blind faith. I tell you who has a blind faith, Richard Dawkins, because he has a faith that does not explain what we observe. It's Christians who have an objective faith. It's a faith that makes sense of what we see, and observational science confirms that. It is exciting to be a Christian, isn't it? Oh, wow, we're up to 30 people excited. That's getting better. We're getting better. Well, then, what do you do with this? I remember one conference I was at. A little boy came up on stage, and he's about, he's about eight years old. And he comes up to me, and he says, Mr. Ham, who made God? How do you answer a young kid like that, who made God? So I said to him, well, son, if somebody made God, you'd have to have a bigger God who made God, right? Well, yes, sir. I said, well, now you've got a problem. Yes, sir. Well, who made the bigger God? You'd have to have a bigger, bigger God who made the bigger God who made God, right? Yes, sir. Well, I said, now you've got a problem. Yes, sir. Well, who made the bigger, bigger God? You'd have to have a bigger, bigger, bigger God who made the bigger, bigger God who made the big God who made God, right? Yes, sir. Well, now you've got a problem. I know. Who made the bigger, bigger, bigger God? You have to have a bigger, 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 bigger God. I made the bigger, bigger, bigger God. I made the bigger, bigger God. I made the big God. Made God, right? Yes, sir. Well, now you've got. I know. And I said, you realise you can keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You know the only thing that makes sense. And a God who's always been there, 
the biggest God of all, the eternal God. The Bible talks about that eternal God, starts off by talking about that eternal God. In the beginning, God, who's existed outside of time, that's the only thing that makes logical sense. And by the way, that's why we have the laws of nature. If it was a random universe, why would you have the laws of nature? How do you know you could trust the laws tomorrow as we trusted them yesterday if it's a random universe? Why should we have laws of nature? Why do you have the laws of logic? I remember a young man came to me once after a conference and he said, Mr. Ham, I heard your seminar, but I still believe we evolved by chance random processes. We did? Yes, sir. I said, well, if you evolved by chance random processes, your brain evolved by chance random processes, right? Well, I guess so, sir. I said, well, if your brain evolved by chance random processes, that means your processes of logic evolved by chance random processes. I said, if your processes of logic evolved by chance random processes, you don't even know if they evolved the right way. Son, you don't even know if you're asking me the right question. <laughs> to which he looked at me and said, sir, wh what was the name of that book you recommended? I think he got the point. Hey, why do we have the uniformity of nature, the laws of nature, the laws of logic? It only makes sense on the basis of a biblical God, in the beginning, God. And you know what I explain to young people too? I want you to understand, see, we've got this idea that you have to go out there and absolutely scientifically prove these sorts of things. We are finite beings. Compared to an infinite creator God, we know nothing. Nothing compared to an infinite creator God. So here's the thing, there's always going to be a faith aspect, always will be. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But here's the difference, Christianity is not a blind faith. We have a revelation from God, and this book claims to be a word of one, the word of one who knows everything, who wrote down for us a very specific history about creation, the fall, and the flood, and the Tower of Babel. He gives us the ability to build the right worldview, to understand the world, who we are, that we're sinners, why death is in the world, what our problem is, what the solution is. We can go out, we can look at the world, and we see overwhelming the evidence that confirms the history over and over and over again, and the prophecies, and everything else. Christianity is not a blind faith, it's the atheists who have a blind faith. It's about time we started to stand tall in our culture in regard to those things. And you know, one other thing, here the scientists today are trying to, trying to tell you that life happened by natural processes and they're doing experiments in laboratories, laboratories to translate. I want you to get ready for that, because normally what they're doing these days, they're taking bits and pieces of DNA and cutting them up and sticking them back together and doing things like that. <laughs> you know what I tell them first of all? Go get your own DNA. But here's a scientist, 50 years research, millions of dollars worth of equipment, and he says, if I can just synthesize life here, I'll improve and no intelligence was necessary to form life in the beginning. So here they are, using their intelligence, using intelligently designed experiments to try to make life in a laboratory to prove it happened by chance, random processes. There's something illogical about that. No wonder Romans says that if you don't believe in God, you're without excuse. Wow, isn't it exciting to be a Christian? It is, oh, that's great. We've got, we got 100 people excited now. We're getting better. Well, you know, I wanted you to understand that about information, because that's just a little, you know, big picture look, and, and you could talk about that for hours. You can have technical lectures on that for hours, but I want you to have that big picture understanding, because we're going to go to the next question. You know, as I travel around the world, one of the questions I've been asked is this, how could Noah fit all the animals on the ark? And one of the ways they ask it is often like this, how could Noah fit all the species of animals on the ark? Well, first of all, the Bible doesn't say species, it says two of each kind. 
And it doesn't say just animals, it was specific to land animals. So we've got to get it right, first of all. How could Noah fit all the kinds of land animals onto the ark? In fact, in Genesis 6.19, it says, Of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind. Seven of some, seven of the clean, but it was two of every kind on board Noah's ark. So the first thing we have to do is have an understanding of what the word kind means. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, the Hebrew word for kind, the word min, the word for kind, is used there ten times, and our scientists because the research we've done and so on, would say this. When it comes to the classification system, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, we believe that in most instances, not all, but nearly, you know, we would say the majority, by far the majority of instances, that the kind is at the family level of classification. And, for instance, if you look at dogs, Canadae, there's different genera and there's different species, but we would say they're all the one kind, which means you only need two of the dogs on Noah's Ark to get all those different species, get those different genera. When it comes to cats, with all the types of cats that we have, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about lions and tigers and leopards and the domestic cats, whatever, there's only, there's only one kind of cat, and, and therefore there are only two cats needed on the Ark. Now, this is important for us to understand because, you see, when you're talking about different species, like you heard the, the atheists, the professors talking about in that video clip, we've got different species of stickleback fish, we got, and we've got different species of finches. That's used in the textbooks as examples for evolution. That's why the students regurgitate that sort of stuff. I want to show you, when you understand information, and you understand what's going on here, it is evidence against evolution. It's not for evolution, it's against evolution. And so, the other thing is this, we have researchers working right now because of the ARC project, and we've got some scientists who've been contracted by Answers in Genesis, and what they're looking at, they take a particular group of animals, and for instance, they took the dogs, and they look around the world, and they notice this species breeds with this one, and this one with this one, and this one with this one, and this one with this one. Now, this one doesn't need to breed with this one, but it does need to breed with this one that connects to these all the way back. You get the idea? And so, they believe that, that from that, they're able to determine which is within an actual kind and draw the boundaries of the kinds. And they're predicting right now with the research they've done. If you go to our Answers in Genesis website, answersingenesis.org, you'll notice one of the websites up the top is the Answers Research Journal. I think we've already had two or three of the research papers on the kinds already published there. And they're predicting right now to us, they think overall it'll be less than 1,000 animal kinds to be taken on the ark. That's not, you know, that's just over 2,000 animals, two of each kind, seven of some. And the average kind of a land animal is pretty small. It's not that big, the average size. And so there was tons of room on Noah's ark. It's just that students aren't taught these things correctly. Because the way the secular world portrays it, he'd have to take all the different species of dogs and the species of cats and all these other species and all the rest. It, nonsense. It's just not true. Now, let me show you the dog kind so you understand what's going on here. The dog family is a diverse group of 34 species, okay? And this is from the secular world. It is clear that the domestic dog originates from the wolf. And so you've got these different species of dogs, and you look at how different they are, but we recognize they're all dogs, and even your domestic varieties. And they're saying something like that gave rise to your domestic species, even these, <laughs> you know, 
people say, how could that give rise to that? Isn't that evolution? Actually, it's the opposite of evolution because it involves a loss of information. It's a downhill change. It really is. Till you get to where a poodle is, a poodle has such limited information that if it lost any more, it would cease to exist. <laughs> it's really the end of the line when it comes to dogs. It is. I mean, it's sort of the bottom of the gene pool. Sorry about that. And of course, because of sin, it's got all sorts of mutations as well. Oh, and by the way, if there's any poodle lovers here, sorry, I apologize, but people say to me, but didn't God make poodles? How could he? Because when he made everything, it was very good. Uh, so, you know, when you look at a poodle, it, a poodle is actually a degenerate, mutant, sin-cursed copy of the original. That's really the best way of explaining it, okay? Now, what we notice is in this... How do we breed the so-called purebred dogs? You know, like you saw, you know, poodles and so on, purebred dogs. Well, what we're doing is to say, oh, look at this dog here. It has, a, it has a particular, say, a flat nose. And this dog has a flat nose. Let's breed them together and get rid of all the genes for long noses, only get flat-nosed dogs together. So you're eliminating variability. That's how we get our purebred dogs. And by the way, in doing that, we usually concentrate mutations because of sin, which is why if you have one of these purebred dogs, you have to take them to vets and get all sorts of you know, injections and they have problems and they have all sorts of issues and that's what keeps vets in business, uh, the degenerate mutants. So, now, how do you get these different species and things? Who's heard of the term natural selection? Heard of that? Okay. Natural selection, adaptation, those terms are used in the public school textbooks as examples of, you know, part of the evolutionary process. I want to show you when you correctly understand natural selection, speciation, adaptation, it's actually the opposite of evolution. The opposite. Because when you understand natural selection, it's a loss of information or it's information conserving process, but it is the opposite of evolution, which should be an information gaining process. We don't see information being gained. In fact, what we, what we find out there is this. You've got all these pools of information. You've got a pool of information for the dog kind, the cat kind, the elephant kind, and so on, the human kind, where humans are different to animals, of course, because we're made in the image of God. But you've got all these pools of information. Over time, you can see how those pools get distributed, and you can get different combinations, and you can get information lost. But if you're going to believe in evolution, you start with no information, and you've got to develop all these pools of information. We don't even see one bit of new information coming from matter. People, evolution is impossible. It did not happen, cannot happen. What they're taught in the public school textbooks is just plain, straight, wrong. That's why I wrote a book called The Lie, Evolution, because that's what it is. Now, let me show you how this works. We don't know how many dogs God made originally. Let's say he made two dogs, and they got married, had kids, and they got married, had kids, and they got married, had kids, and eventually you end up with lots of dogs. Now, <laughs> how do you get your different species of dogs? Well, in genetics, we have a convention where we label genes with letters. Big A, little a, big B, little b. You get the idea? Okay. Now, it's much more complicated, much more technical than this. But again, we're just looking at basic principles. So these are the basic genetic principles, Okay, even though it's much more complex. But... So here we have a male and female. So big A, big B, big C represent dominant genes. Little a, little b, little c represent recessive genes. Remember this? <laughs> Millions of years ago for some of you. But OK, so male and female. So 
okay, in sexual reproduction, you get one set of genes from the male, one from the female, fertilization, wow, there's an individual. Stop and look at that individual for a moment. Does it have more information, less information, or the same amount of information as the parents? It's actually got less. It's got less variability because it no longer has a little a, little b, little c. You see that? Okay, now here's some other combinations. Now I like to use this one, little a, little a, little b, little b, little c, little c, to represent purebred dogs like poodles. Okay, because notice something. You've eliminated the variability, right? So think about this. If you breed a poodle with a poodle, what are you going to end up with? A poodle, that's it. See what I mean? End of the line. Pretty sad. Now, could you ever breed poodles together for as long as you could and get wolves back again? No. But theoretically, could you start with wolves if these were wolves? Could you start with wolves and get poodles again? And the answer is what? Yes. Ah, see, when you start to understand what's happening on the inside, you'll start to understand what's happening on the outside, right? So, the number of atoms in the universe, remember I said 10 to the 80th power, if you took one man and one woman from this audience, the number of children you could have without having two with the same combination of information is that number. Incredible amount of variability that God put in the gene pools of all the different kinds. So, two of each kind went on board Noah's Ark. You only need two dogs. So two dogs go on Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark lands in the Middle East about 4,300 years ago. By the way, that means, as far as we're concerned, most of your fossils are about 4,300 years old, but that's another area. So then what happens? They come off the ark, and we end up with lots of dogs. But they're not going to stay together. They're going to split up, and as they go to different places, what's going to happen? You're going to end up with different combinations of genes in different groups, depending on who survives, right? For instance, here we have two dogs that got off Noah's ark. They fell in love, had two, there are only two. And they have an S, S gene for short hair, an L gene for long hair. S and L together makes a medium hair length dog. Okay, they have an offspring. Wow, we got something new. Look on the outside, it's got short hair. Wow, we got these finches that have short beaks. Wow, different species or, or whatever. This is evolution. People, I want you to look on the inside. Is there any new information there? In fact, does it have the same amount of information as the parents or less? Really, as far as variability is concerned, it's got less because it no longer has the L gene. You know what it's got new? A new combination of information that was already there. It's a new combination, not new information. And then you can have one that has the same combination as the parents said, long hair. Oh, look, we got these finches with big beaks. Wow, that's evolution. Wait a minute. See, this is new. See, what students are told to look at, look, it's gained hair, it's got long hair, it's a gain, that's evolution, evolution gains things. When you look on the inside, you realize it's lost things. It's lost the S gene. It's worse off than the parents. Now, what they call natural selection and adaptation, this is what's really going on from a big picture perspective. Imagine these dogs move towards a cold climate. In a cold climate, those with um, medium hair and short hair get cold. <laughs> and then they die. <laughs> and now you're only left with dogs with L genes who are on their own, only produce dogs with what? L genes. So now you've got a group of dogs that can't produce short hair, medium hair again. If they're isolated from each other, you can see how, if, you know, and this is very simplistic, but you could get a different species that they call it. And actually, when I went to university, I was told 
these animals have developed these different species, and evolution has gone so far, these can't even interbreed with these. Which means, by the way, it's the opposite of evolution. Now they can't even regain the information they once had. See, people are brainwashed into thinking the wrong way. Okay, imagine they go towards a hot climate. In a hot climate, those with long hair and medium hair overheat. And they die. And now you're left with dogs with S genes who are on their own and produce dogs with what? S genes. So what's new? It's a new combination of already existing information. It has less information than the parents, which is the opposite of evolution. Natural selection is a downhill process, loss of information, conserving information. Evolution, in the molecules to man sense, requires new information, addition of information, the opposite of what we observe. So when you see all these different species forming, whether dogs or finches, it has nothing to do with evolution. It's all just a reflection of the history and what happened when animals came off Noah's Ark, spread away from each other, split off in, in different diverse environments. And it's also the fact that there was an incredible uh, potential in the gene pool of the dogs to start with, which makes us realize Noah didn't need anywhere near the number of animals that went on the Ark that we think. He only needed two cats. When it comes to elephants, elephants, we think the kind is at the order level because there's two orders of elephants, but it's the way that man arbitrarily classifies things. Only two elephants. You didn't need your stegomastodons and your mastodons and your Indian elephants and your African elephants and your mammoths. You just needed two of the elephant kind. And so it goes on. And people, you start to realize, wait a minute, we have been brainwashed into thinking things that just are not true. That's right, because we're not taught how to think correctly. The public school textbooks do not teach students correctly about these issues. What they teach them is wrong. And I'm thought, imagine if we could get this information to them. By the way, we have um, a DVD called Check This Out. We have six animated programs on here. I'm going to show you one of them. And they're great for teaching young people some of these concepts. And we do it in a way that, you know, this is for the modern generation that think fast, do things fast, answer the door, and they text hello, you know, that sort of generation. Uh, so for the older people here, fasten your seat belts. You're going to have to listen real quickly. Make sure your luggage is under the seat in front of you in the overhead locker and your seat backs and tray tables see upright position. Okay, you ready? You can tell I fly too much. Here we go. You hear this one a lot. Science has proven evolution, therefore evolution is true. Since evolution is true and Christians don't believe it, then Christians don't believe science and they aren't rational people. Really, let's put that claim to the test. First off, evolution in the sense that things change is evident. No rational person disputes that. Therefore, rational Christians believe it. We can observe change, but evolution in the sense that life came from non-life and then that life began to randomly generate new genetic information and over time it eventually produced humans is something entirely different and something that quite honestly doesn't hold up against science. In other words, evolution in the sense of molecules to man is not scientifically plausible and therefore should not be viewed as scientific fact. Quite honestly, it is in great opposition to science, that is, observational science, the kind of science we can test and repeat and use our five senses to understand. Science demonstrates that over time, Living organisms lose genetic information. They don't gain it. That same science demonstrates that life doesn't arise from non-life. Hey, Follow along from? if you would. Fact one, there is no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to an organism's genetic code. 
None. That pretty much refutes evolution right away because there's no way to go from a fish to an amphibian without adding new information, right? If living organisms cannot produce new genetic information, how can anything gradually change into something of higher intelligence or form or complexity? That is, how can anything evolve from an amoeba to a man without adding new genetic information? The answer, of course, is that it can't. Plain and simple. Now, some have speculated and they have imagined all kinds of things and they brought in artists to produce creative renderings based on guesses and they have been successful in telling a very convincing story that humans evolved from ape-like creatures, but those are just drawings, people. They're just stories. But what we really observe is humans are humans and apes are apes. Now, if fact one buried evolutionary thinking deep into the Precambrian soil, this next fact, fact two, tosses so much sediment on it that not even the greatest team of paleontologists with the latest subterranean gizmo could dig up the remains. Check this out. Never, again, never has it been observed that life can come from non-life. So here are two major scientific evidences against evolution. I reiterate for clarity, life has never been observed to come from non-life, and there is no known, observable process by which new genetic information can be added to the genetic code of an organism. So molecules demand evolution doesn't really make scientific sense. Yet we are all here, and life is all around us in various forms. Although evolution cannot account for this, the Bible can. The Bible reveals that the all-powerful, all-knowing, supernatural God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and all life according to its kinds, that is, each with its own set of genetic information. So, again, what the Bible reveals makes sense of what we see and understand. Evolution does not. Enough said. Okay. There you are. We just taught students more in three minutes than they get in a whole year's course in biology. I mean, really. And there's five other videos like that on that DVD. They're incredible. Well, let me just show you again now. Now that you understand that, let's go back to Ray Comfort interviewing some of these students. Now, with what you know about natural selection, genetic information, about where information comes from and so on, now listen to their answers. These are the typical answers they give today. When you say change of kinds, you mean the evolution of one species from another or to another. Yes, we have that in action, actually, in the Galapagos. Could you uh, give me one instance? Yes, we have an example from a group of birds called Darwin's finches. And you take a look at the difference between the finches on the islands that all started out. I mean, that's very, very observable. But that's not Darwinian evolution. There's been no change of kinds. What did the finches become? They become genetically new and anatomically new, recognizably different species. So they're still finches? Well, of course, they're still finches, yes. So not a change of, there's no change of kind. Little birds that he, uh, that he had observed that... Oh, what did they become? Um, their beaks, their beak shapes. They're their still colors. birds. Yes, three finches that turn into different types of birds. Based they're still the finches. Well, for example, Darwin and, and his study on evolution of the birds on the island that he went on to there. Their beaks changed? Their beaks. Uh, they're still birds. There's no change of kinds. That's within the kind. Just evolution on the beaks. That's so that's called adaptation. It's not Darwinian evolution. There's no change of kinds. There's no different animal involved. I want something that shows me Darwin's belief in a change of kinds as scientific. Darwin spoke of a change of kind. Can you think of any observable evidence for Darwinian evolution where there's a change of kind? Uh, change of kind. Change of kind. Uh, I'm going to have to think about that one a little longer. you give me anything that I can see, observe, and test, which is a scientific method for Darwinian evolution, a change of kinds? Test and observe. 
Could you give me observable evidence, which is a scientific method, for Darwinian evolution, a change of kinds? about it <laughs> um, so you want the evidence of it I would say I cannot I think um, hmm Hard question, actually. Mitochondrial DNA. So, can you repeat the question again? Could you give me any observable evidence, just one, for Darwinian evolution? Uh, let me think about that for a sec. Um, hmm. Observable evidence, something where we don't have to exercise faith. Something that can be observed, like the scientific process, observable? Hmm, that's a good question. That one I'm not quite sure. So you can't think of any observable evidence for evolution? No. How do you know it's true? Hmm. I'm not sure. So Darwinian evolution is not observable, it's not scientific? I guess so. So it's unscientific, you can't prove it. It's scientific, actually. You could prove it. It could be proven, just... Do it for me. Ah, that's hard. I don't got, I don't, it's just, that's just too broad of a... Of it's unobservable. That's why you need millions of years. Yes, exactly. Ah, did you hear that? See, you've got to have an incomprehensible amount of time to convince people that the little changes you see will add up to the big changes for evolution. And that's why, you know, for a lot of Christians, they think as long as you don't believe in evolution, uh, it doesn't matter about the age of the earth, I want you to understand something. Evolution is only the symptom. The millions of years is the disease. And so many Christians have accepted millions of years. And to the atheists and the secularists, they just love that because they know while they've got millions of years, they can propose evolution. You don't have millions of years. What are they going to do? Believe the Bible? That's why they intimidate people to believe in millions of years. Now, when you come to the Creation Museum, notice I said when you come, uh, you will see there, we have Darwin's finches here, we've got the beaks, these, are, these look exactly like Darwin's finches, and they've got the beak sizes, and right beside that, we have skulls of dogs, the wolf and different varieties of dogs you see here. People, there's more variation in that than there is in those beaks. But they would never consider that as evidence for evolution, because we know that all this variation occurred within the last few hundred years, because we've seen that happen. And it's interesting, See, when Darwin first proposed his idea of this evolutionary tree, he put in his book, and we've actually got the, a picture of the page there in the museum, where it say, he says, I think, and that's exactly what it is, I think, my belief. And you've got these different kinds of animals and plants, and then you've got all these branches that join them up. That The branches are the belief. Now, what you actually see is this, different kinds of animals and plants great variation, different species within a kind, what you see is an orchard, not a tree. And this, fit, what you see, fits directly with this, which would be based upon what the Bible says, whereas this doesn't work. It is exciting to be a Christian, isn't it? Now, oh, we, I think we're getting there. Wow. 
we're, we're getting there. You'll be able to go and take the universities by storm here in a moment. Okay, now, come to the next question. Okay, you believe in Noah's Ark. Noah could get the animals on the ark. Okay, we're starting to grasp hold of all of that. What is the evidence for a global flood? And this is important because the very evidence that we believe is for the flood is the evidence that's used today for millions of years. So if most of your fossil records from the flood, you've just done away with millions of years. When you go and look out on the earth, you see incredible amount of fossiliferous layers like you see at the Grand Canyon. Some of those layers at the Grand Canyon extend across the continental US and other continents around the world. They are massive. Most people don't know that. The, the secular textbooks won't tell the kids that. They don't want the kids to know that. In fact, you know what, you know what Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, is doing? We are actually disseminating information. That's why those resources out there are so important. I mean that. The books, the DVDs, we're disseminating information to the public that is being censored from the public. You think about it. They have to legislate to protect the teaching of evolution in school. If evolution is so obvious the, it, that it explains the evidence that science, observational science confirms evolution, why would they have to protect it like that? Why do they say you can't even teach other views to students? They have to do that to protect it because it's not true. That's why they do that. And so they censor information from the public. And what we're doing is getting information out there to show them what's really going on. I've stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon with an evolutionist who said, do you realize a long time and a little bit of water did this? I stood there and said, do you realize a lot of water and a little bit of time did this? Now, I couldn't bring our geologist along with us, Dr. Andrew Snelling. He has a PhD in geology from Sydney University, heads up our research department at Answers in Genesis. So I brought him along on video. He's got an Australian accent, so you'll have to listen. See, Australians are taking over the world. And Dr. Snelling is going to explain to you the evidences of the flood. And then I'll clarify some of the things with some uh, pictures after this. What are some of the best flood evidences? If the flood really did occur, what evidence would we look for? You know, most people haven't even thought of that question, let alone thought of an answer. You know, the Bible says that the fountains of the great deep were opened, the rain fell from heaven for 40 days and 40 nights, the waters rose 150 days until all the high hills under the whole of the heaven were covered and the mountains were covered. And we're told that all land dwelling, air breathing life perished except for those on the ark. Wouldn't we expect to find billions of dead plants and animals buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth? And that's exactly what we find. Billions of dead things called fossils buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. But let's expand on that. Let's look at six of the best evidences for the flood. Evidence number one, sea creatures buried high in mountains on the continents. That's right, marine creatures that live in the ocean are found in mountains like the Himalayas. How did they get there? Unless the ocean waters rose up over the continents. And we find marine creatures in rock layers all over the continents everywhere around the world. Evidence number two, we'd find rapidly buried plants and animals. Well, we do, fossils. We find fossils not only of plants, but of bees, of bats. We find fish that are, uh, haven't finished having their breakfast eating another fish they're buried and fossilised. Ichthyosaurs giving birth to babies and they're fossilised. We find delicately preserved fossilised jellyfish. How do you fossilise a jellyfish slowly? Evidence number three, rapidly deposited sediment layers right across the continents. We find that everywhere we look, 
Look at the red wall limestone, full of fossils in the Grand Canyon. Yet the same limestone layer is found in the same position over in Pennsylvania, then over in England, and even in the Himalayas. The chalk beds, the White Cliffs of Dover, we find the same chalk beds in Europe, in the Middle East, over into Kazakhstan, we find the same chalk beds with the same fossils in Texas and the Midwestern United States. We find the same chalk beds in Western Australia. The coal beds of Pennsylvania and West Virginia are also found in, in England and Europe, right across to the Ural Mountains. Evidence number four, long transport distance of sediments. The Coconino sandstone in the Grand Canyon. The sand grains are believed to have been eroded and washed from it far north as at least Wyoming. The Navajo sandstone in Zion National Park, those huge white cliffs, the sand grains are believed to have been eroded and washed all the way from the Appalachians right across North America. Evidence number five, rapid or no erosion between uh, sediment layers. Again, think in terms of the uh, Coconino sandstone and the Hermit Shale, it's a, there's a knife edge, flat featureless boundary between those two rock layers for mile after mile through the Grand Canyon. Yet the geologists claim that there's 10 million years missing at that boundary. What would have happened during 10 million years of weathering and erosion? You'd get a topography, not a flat featureless boundary. The bottom of the Grand Canyon, the Tapit sandstone sits on the pre-flood rocks and we have evidence of huge erosion there with boulders being picked up from the underlying rock layers indicating rapid erosion. Evidence number six, we find whole rock layer sequences deposited rapidly in quick succession. Look at the walls of the Grand Canyon, from the tapetes at the bottom to the Kaibab limestone at the top, supposed to be representing 300 million years of slow and gradual sedimentary deposition. When the plateau was pushed up, those rock layers were bent and folded, but they were folded without fracturing. They had to be soft if they were bent without fracturing. That means that they could only have just have been deposited, but that means the 300 million years never happened. All those rock layers had to be rapidly deposited in quick succession during the flood year. So you see, when you ask the right question, you get the right answers. Who are we going to believe? The scientists who weren't there, who don't know everything, who sometimes make mistakes, or the word of God who was there, who saw what happened and told us what happened during the flood. And what we see in God's world agrees with what we read in God's word. That's just a little bit. I mean, Andrew gives hours of lectures on this. And if you go to our AnswersInGenesis.org website, the technical journal there, Answers Research Journal, he edits that. It's free. But lots of research articles on geology as well as all the other major disciplines too. You know, when Mount St. Helens erupted May 18th, 1980, many people don't realize that hundreds of feet of sedimentary layers were laid down by that catastrophe. It was only a little catastrophe. That layer in the middle consists of 30 feet of, of individual layers, thousands of individual layers, layer upon layer upon layer. Normally, if you didn't see that occur, you would interpret that as taking a long period of time. But all of those layers, the whole 30 feet, was laid down in less than three hours. There were canyons formed at Mount St. Helens by mud flows 
canyon, in fact, when you look there today and you see the Turtle River, you could assume the Turtle River carved the canyon. Actually, the canyon was carved by a mud flow so the river could flow through. See, if you weren't there to see it, you wouldn't know. Stand on the Grand Canyon. Oh, it's obvious the Colorado River eroded the Grand Canyon, but none of us were there to see it. How about the canyon was formed so the river could flow through? Because really, we believe that's what happened. And I'll show you quickly in a moment, as Dr. Snelling referred to. There are some canyons formed by mud flows carving through hard basalt rock in a matter of just a few years. Didn't take millions of years. And you know what, some, what floods can do. Local floods can do massive catastrophic work. Imagine what a global flood would do. Watch this short video from our Creation Museum. The Earth's surface is scarred by deep canyons, cut into solid rock. But how did they form? A little bit of water over a long time, or a little bit of time with a lot of water. Modern rivers don't generally cut downward into solid rock, so today's river erosion seems incapable of explaining rock canyons. The great flood of the Bible, however, provides a possible explanation for such canyons. In soft mud or sand in your own backyard, you can see the power of heavy rains on a small scale. A rainstorm can create miniature canyons in only minutes. Though these canyons are very small, cut into mud, they share many of the same characteristics as the world's great canyons. On a larger scale, mud flows have also been observed to form these features quickly. At Mount St. Helens, a single mud flow off the mountain carved Engineer's Canyon out of soft sediment in a single day, 100 feet deep, and the same thing even happened in solid rock. A series of mud flows created Lewitt and Step Canyons on the front face of Mount St. Helens, cutting hundreds of feet into solid rock over just a few years. We observe canyons being cut into rock today, but only by catastrophic processes. Just imagine how easy it would be to cut massive canyons during and after Noah's flood. Torrential water and mud flows, followed by uplift and heavy rains, created the right conditions to produce the world's canyons. Furthermore, it may have been easier when flood sediments had not fully hardened. Grand Canyon is a good example where we find evidence of catastrophic forces at work. Upstream is evidence of huge lakes. These lakes would never have formed if the canyon were already open below them. However, if these lakes had formed from rains after Noah's flood, and if the pressure of these waters broke through and carved through the recently deposited sediments, then we would expect to find surge deposits downstream. Below Grand Canyon, this is precisely what we find. Evidence of a lot of water cutting over a little bit of time. When you go to the Grand Canyon, you actually go up because the whole area was lifted up. It's called the Kaibab Upwalk. And you can actually go, as Dr. Andrew Snelling showed you this picture, and see where those layers were lifted up. Now, according to the secular uh, ideas, these layers, heat and pressure over millions of years bent these layers up. But a number of things. Number one, heat and pressure on sedimentary layers, you're going to see metamorphic processes at work, turning into metamorphic rock. You don't see any such uh, examples. The crystals are not elongated. 
uh, the, the rocks aren't broken. They were lifted up while they were soft. That whole area was lifted up at the end of the flood while it was still soft. And then you see air, behind the Grand Canyon, there's evidence there was once massive lakes. They're dry now, but you see the evidence of those massive lakes, as I showed you on the video. If that whole area was soft when it was lifted up, and then there'd be fracturing because of that, and then the leftover waters from the flood rains off the flood, the dam breaks, washes out the Grand Canyon, downstream you find the surge deposits, just like you'd expect. It's incredible, it's all there, but most people don't know about it. It's withheld from people because it would go against the idea of millions of years of slow erosion by the Colorado River. I even have people say to me, but doesn't it take millions of years to make a fossil? No, it doesn't. Here's one of my favorite fossils. Uh, it's a petrified ham, no relation of mine. But somebody left a ham in the middle uh, in a village uh, in New Zealand, was covered by volcanic ash, and years later when they dug it out, they found the ham petrified. At the Creation Museum, we have this fossil fish. It was in the middle of swallowing its breakfast, as Dr. Snelling says, and was fossilized. Whatever happened was quick. Uh, there's lots of examples of this. A friend of mine found a spark plug embedded in a rock off the coast of California. What, was that used by an ape man in his chariot millions of years ago? Well, no, not at all. I remember being in Spain at a university and a young man jumped up in the audience and he said, everyone knows it takes millions of years to form rock. Can you give an example of rock forming quickly? And I said, sure, have you ever heard of concrete? <laughs> Which is really an artificial form of rock. Uh, did you know that in recent times, scientists have found when you dissolve out dinosaur uh, mineralization in dinosaur fossils, that there's still, in many fossils, still soft tissue there. There's still blood vessels, blood cells. In fact, watch this short video clip from uh, the Discovery Channel. Mary Schweitzer, who was the scientist that first discovered these, and listen to what she says. I'm not going to believe this. When she picked up a small piece to stop the reaction by putting it in water, it stretched and it sproined and it moved all over the place. So we knew we had something pretty unusual. It appears to be soft tissue. When they look at neighboring parts of the bone, they're even more surprised. Out popped the blood vessels and they were pretty incredible. And I said, I don't believe it, that's not possible. We need to do it again and again. It's one of those just Goosebump-inducing scientific moments, that's all I can say. And I, they don't really happen very often. Blood vessels should not exist in fossilized bone. Many scientists believe organic molecules can't last more than 100,000 years. Yet Schweitzer's bone is 68 million years old. I think the presence of soft tissues and cells indicates there's a process going on that we didn't have a clue about. So I think it means that we have to kind of rethink the whole chemical process of making a bone turn into a fossil. By the way, did you notice she didn't say, we need to rethink the time? You know why? They won't rethink the time. They can't. They've got to have their millions of years or they can't propose evolution. She said, we'll rethink the chemical process, but not the time. Now, we're sort of running out of time, by the way, but then again, a day is like a thousand years, so I guess I could do whatever I want, but let me deal with that issue of time sort of as we wind, the, wind this up, just to make you think we're getting near the end. I always say that to make people think that. I want to deal with it from a Christian perspective, first of all, real quickly. Do you know, if you just read Genesis, it says God created first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, Exodus 20, verse 11, in six days, God made everything. 
And of course, this is an incredible contentious issue in much of the church, a very emotional issue. You'll find that many pastors do not believe in six literal days or say, you don't know what the word day means in Genesis. Many Christians say, well, I don't know. Uh, I, I want to go through that issue real quickly here tonight. It's a very important issue. If those days are ordinary days, just, just let me say that right now. Those days are ordinary days. If they are ordinary, approximately 24-hour days, then five days uh, before Adam, then from Adam to Abraham's 2,000 years, from Abraham until today, 4,000 years, you get a total of 6,000 years. For instance, when you go to the Bible, now in the New Testament genealogies, there's lots of gaps because they're summaries and they're there for a particular reason, particularly to show uh, the lineage of Christ, Jesus Christ, the God-man, back through Joseph and, and, and Mary and so on. But he, 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 here's the thing. If in the Old Testament, those genealogies, we don't believe there's any gaps in them. For instance, Adam was made on day six. Uh, then the Bible gives us very specific uh, information that when he was 130 years old, he fathered a son in his likeness called Seth. And then it tells us about Seth. And it tells us that uh, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. And then it goes on and tells you when people lived and when they died and when they had children. You can follow this all the way through. It's very specific. And as you do that, and you add up all the dates as you're going through, that's how you come to about 6,000 years. So if those days are ordinary days, then the universe is only 6,000 years old. The earth uh, is only 6,000 years old, um, and not millions of years. Now, if those days are ordinary days. So let's look at that. Can we know what the word day means in Genesis 1? Here's what's interesting. I, I, I had... Uh, a pastor once said to me, well, the word day can mean something other than an ordinary day. And here was my answer to him. You are totally correct. It can mean something other than an ordinary day. But it can also mean an ordinary day. And in fact, you might find this surprising, but the main meaning of day is day. Wow, who would have thought of that? Now, do you know that most words can have two or more meanings dependent upon context? For instance, I could say to you, some of you came back after being here this morning and you're at the back of the church and you're sitting with your back against the back of the chair and your back is sore and you might come back again next week. You know what the word back there means, don't you? It has different meanings. You know, the word day in English has a range of meanings, just like the word day in Hebrew has a range of meanings in English. You know, back in my father's day, that means time. When you say, you know, um, oh, back in that day, you mean time. It took 10 days, 10 24-hour days to drive across the Australian outback during the day. When you say, if you say, I go to college during the day, you really mean during the daylight portion of a day. The Hebrew word has a similar range of meanings. In the day of the Lord, in the time of the judges, that's the Hebrew word for day, it means time. In the day that God created, Genesis 2. In the day that you eat, you will surely die. It means time, in the time that you eat. The Hebrew word for day has a number of meanings. It can mean ordinary day, which is its main meaning. But you know what's interesting? The Hebrew word for day is used 2,301 times in the Old Testament in the singular or plural form. And we know what it means everywhere it's used except Genesis chapter 1. Think about that. You don't question what the word day means in other parts of the Old Testament. I mean, you don't go to the account of Joshua and say, how long did he take to march around Jericho? Was it 100,000 years? Was it a million years? You know, when it says he marched around in one day, how long did he take? You don't ask that. You know it means it was an ordinary day. Here's the thing. If you look up Hebrew dictionaries, in fact, I think we've probably run out of the new book. We only bought a couple of cases with us, six days. 
and the age of the earth and the decline of the church. Uh, you could order it for our website, or if you, if you back order it here, by the way, we'll send it to you without any freight charge. That's the easy way to do it and the cheapest way, because that's our policy if you run out of something. But here's, if, if, I've got a whole chapter in that book where we researched all the Hebrew lexicons, the Hebrew dictionaries and so on. People, when does the word day in Hebrew, when does the context mean it means an ordinary day? Actually, when it's connected to a number, outside of Genesis 1, 410 times, there's only two exceptions, one's in a prophetic sense and one's in a poetic sense. But in all the other senses, when it's connected to a number, it means an ordinary day. When you have the phrase evening and morning, it means an ordinary day. When you have evening with day or morning with day, it means an ordinary day. When you have night with day, it means an ordinary day. In other words, here's when the word day means an ordinary 24-hour day. When you have it day with a number, evening and morning, evening with day, morning with day or night with day. Now, because so many Christians and many pastors and Christian leaders don't know what the word day means in Genesis 1, it must be difficult to work it out. Let's see how difficult it is. Let's go to Genesis 1 first day there was night there was evening and morning evening and morning one day first day evening morning number day evening morning number day evening morning you know I'm getting a very strong hint are you getting a very strong hint you know what I think I think God was saying this these people in the 21st century are going to be so thick I'm going to qualify this word over and over again and they're still not going to believe because they don't want to believe where do we get the idea of our week from the day the rotation of the earth the month the earth and the moon the year the earth and the sun the week the Bible. But then I get these people come to me, oh, they are so annoying. Oh, this is one of those times I pray and I say, Lord, please, I do not want to punch them in the nose. I don't want to do it. Please help me not to do it. They come to me. I hope you're not one of these people. They come to me and they say, well, you know, the Bible says after all, a day is like a thousand years. Ugh. Where'd you get that from? Well, it's in the Bible somewhere. Second Peter 3, a day is like a thousand years. First thing I say to them, read the rest of the verse. A thousand years are like a day. <laughs> I just cancelled that one out. <laughs> and besides which, it doesn't say a day is like a thousand years. It says one day is with the... Oh, to God, a day is like a thousand years. What's the context of Second Peter 3? In the last days, there'll be scoffers who are scoffing. You know, Jesus Christ is not coming again. Where's the promise of his coming? Because things go on and on since the big creation, and they're willing the ignorant of creation, and willing the ignorant of the flood, and that God's going to judge, and so on. God is not slack concerning his promise, but it is not his will that any should perish. To God, a day is like a thousand years, or a thousand years like a day. It's talking about the fact that God's outside of time, and... And, and so to God, a day is like a thousand years. And so you think it's a long time and God hasn't come back yet? To God, it's not a long time because he's outside of time. He doesn't want anyone to perish. You can't use a phrase from the New Testament to determine the meaning of a Hebrew word in Genesis. That is absurd. You can't do that. And yet so many, you know why we do it? We'll do anything but believe in six days. Because as soon as you believe in six literal days, and therefore you've got a young universe, you're going to be intimidated by, by, by secularists and others. You're going to be scoffed at. You're going to be mocked at. You're going to be called anti-scientific. You're going to be called anti-intellectual. You prepared to stand on God's word and cop that? Because there were people in the Bible who were prepared to stand on God's word and got sawn in half and, the, and got burned at the stake and got thrown to wild animals. And yet we worry about a little scoffing because we believe in six days. We need to stand on God's word. 
And you know, it's interesting when people say to me, a day's like a thousand years, they only ever do it in relation to the days of creation. Have you noticed that? I mean, do you ever see them saying, well, I think Jonah was in that fish for 3,000 years. After all, a day is like a thousand years. Hey, very quickly, let me mention something that I mentioned this morning. As Christians, if you believe in millions of years, you have a problem. Because you see, the fossil record is a record of death and disease and suffering and animals eating each other. Remember what I said this morning? Originally, the animals and man were all vegetarian. Death came into the world because of man's sin. Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. The first death in the garden, when God clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skins, when he shed the blood of an animal, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. That was the first death. There was no death before that day. If the shedding of blood, if the shedding of blood there is to do with atonement, remission of sins, if there was a shedding of blood for millions of years, why would, why would this have anything to do with the atonement? doesn't make any sense. We weren't told we could eat meat until after the flood. God changed our diet. See, if you believe in millions of years, then you believe those layers will lay down over millions of years, but those layers have evidence of animals eating each other. They were vegetarian to start with. Evidence of diseases like brain tumors, cancer, arthritis, but everything was very good when God made it. There's thorns in the fossil record hundreds of millions of years old. The Bible says thorns came after the curse. See, Romans 8 says the whole of creation groans. These two things can't be true at the same time, which is why you can't have millions of years of fossils, disease, thorns, animals eating each other before man. If the Bible's true, which it is, it has to be explained after man at the flood of Noah explains it. But people don't want to believe in a flood. Why? Because then you're saying the Bible's true. You know what's interesting? Scientists a few years ago proposed there was a global flood on Mars to explain the canyons on Mars. There's no water on Mars. They're happy to have a global flood on a planet that has no liquid water, but they refuse to have one on a planet that's mostly covered by water. Do you know why that is? Because to agree there's a global flood on Earth is to agree the Bible's true. It doesn't talk about a global flood on Mars, so they don't care about that. It, it, Man is in rebellion against God. And you know, one other thing. Some of you may have heard of a man called Hugh Ross. Anyone here heard of Hugh Ross? And he goes out and, you know, I know he's been in some churches in this area, by the way, and uh, he tries to convince people to believe in Big Bang, millions of years, and all the rest of it. And when we bring up the issue of death, you know what his answer is? Well, there was death before sin, because plants die. Excuse me, you need to study the Bible. There's a Hebrew word, nephesh that applies to animals and man. It's, it's a word that means life spirit, does not apply to plants. Plants do not have a nephesh. Plants are not alive in the way animals are. They don't die like animals. They were given for food. In fact, you can even see this. You imagine taking your wife or your girlfriend out one night and saying, <clears throat> oh, let's go for a romantic evening. You see a dead tree. Let's sit on that dead tree, gaze into each other's eyes, have a romantic evening. Can you imagine what would happen if you said, oh, there's a dead rotting animal. Let's sit on that, gaze into each other's eyes, have a romantic evening. I don't have time to deal with the dating methods tonight. Um, I'll be sort of running out of time here. We'll run out of time. Wait a minute, you didn't hand over to me till 6.30. Or was it 6.15 or 6.10? Okay, let, let me just do a little bit more. The dating methods are all based on assumptions. Okay, you've got to understand, dating methods 
involve, you've got to have a process that changes with time. All right, so when somebody says to you, we've dated this rock to be so many millions of years old, what dating method did they use? There are hundreds of dating methods that you can use, hundreds. Did you know the majority of them contradict billions of years? For instance, salt accumulates in the oceans at a rate you can measure. This is from secular data. And so, so there's salt that comes in and salt that goes out, so we can measure uh, the net gain of salt. Now, if you assume the oceans were distilled water to start with, now you say, how do you know that? You don't. But you see, that's the issue. All dating methods have to assume something about the start when you weren't there. If you assume salt has been adding up at the same rate in the past as you see today, you say, how do you know that? You don't. Every dating method, doesn't matter whether it's uranium lead, potassium argon, rubidium strontium, whatever it is, they all have to make assumptions when you weren't there. And see, if you do that, the oceans are supposed to be three billion years old. On the basis of the present build-up of salt, they could only be 62 million years or less. What if there was a global flood? What if God put some salt in the oceans to start with? The flood would have d destroyed, uh, you know, upset the, the amount of salt in the oceans. Actually, that contradicts the billions of years. It doesn't contradict thousands of years. When it comes to dating methods, uh, in, in Australia, here's a lava flow, a basalt layer. It's supposed to be uh, about 45 million years old, according to uh, the data that's out there using potassium argon dating. But that lava flowed over a forest. There's some trees in the lava, and the trees are woody. They're still woody, actually. But when you date the trees using carbon dating, they date to 45,000 years old. When you, when you date basalt using potassium argon dating, the basalt that surrounds the wood is dated at 45 million years old. See, there's something that doesn't make sense. And you know what they found, for instance, our researchers found in, in New Zealand, when lava comes out of the ground and you date it, as they did at Mount St. Helens, by the way, but when it comes out of the ground, it dates to millions of years. It should be zero years. You know what they found? Potassium argon dating, potassium uh, changes into argon over a period of time. They found that argon comes up from the mantle. It's already there, making it look old. And here's the thing. When, when they know when a rock formed, they can work out why the dating method doesn't work. When they don't know when it formed, the dating method works. And many different dating methods give all sorts of contradictory dates, sometimes differences by hundreds of millions of years. And then one last thing, when it comes to carbon dating, you know, most people, put your hands up if you've heard carbon dating used as evidence for millions of years, put your hands up. Okay, see all the hands? Put your hands down for a minute. This, this is really important. Carbon dating never has had, can't do, doesn't have anything to do with millions of years. Never has had. That's not me saying that. This is the secular scientists will tell you. It can't do. It has nothing to do with millions of years. You know what blows my mind? I've even heard public school teachers, I've seen it in school textbooks where they say carbon dating shows millions of years. It has nothing to do with millions of years. Now, the uranium, lead, potassium, argon, those methods do have things to do with millions of years. They've all got assumptions and they've all got problems, but, not, but carbon dating has nothing to do with millions of years because the half-life of carbon-14, uh, carbon radioactive carbon, is very short and just over 5,000 years and 5,730 odd years. And because of that, after about 100,000 years, there would be no carbon-14 there. So you see, carbon dating has nothing to do with millions of years, but it can be used this way. If something is supposedly millions of years old, there shouldn't be any carbon-14 in it. It should, should have all gone. 
because after about 100,000 years, it's gone. The half-life of the radioactive decay is very short. You know, they found carbon-14 in dinosaur bones and coal deposits and oil deposits and all sorts of other deposits said to be millions of years old. The scientists claim, oh, it must be contamination. It's not contamination. It's because they're not that old. And the creation scientists a few years ago did an experiment. They got diamonds, which are the hardest naturally occurring substance known to man, dated by a potassium-argon dating method to be 1, 1 to 2 billion years old, sent them to secular labs who then crushed them and so on and did the dating using carbon dating and they dated to 58,000 years old. Here's the thing. If they were billions of years old, they shouldn't get a carbon date. But they did. There's so much out there that we could look at like that. But I want to do just one last little thing quickly just to show you how we should be working. This is a whole hour's lecture in itself, but I'm just going to do it real quickly in a couple of minutes. I want you to do this, okay? Because somebody came and asked me about dinosaurs. How do you explain dinosaurs? Do you believe in dinosaurs? Do you think they existed? Did they die during the flood? Here's the problem we've got, and this is a whole other another series of, of, of understanding things that, that I teach on, but that is, do you realize if we understand what the Bible is, it's not just a book you add to your thinking. If it's a revelation from God who knows everything, then he's given us a revelation concerning the history of the universe to give us the right foundation to build the right worldview to understand the present. You see that? Like a forensic scientist comes in, here's the evidence of a murder, but what you really need is someone to tell you exactly what happened. Otherwise, you can come to wrong conclusions, and they have. They put people in jail and find they're innocent because then they find the DNA doesn't match, and so on. See, really the issue of origins is like a forensic scientist. We're coming in, and we've got all the evidence of the present, and we're saying, what happened in the past? Well, the Bible gives us a history. You know what I often hear Christians say to me? How do you fit dinosaurs into the Bible? How do you fit the Grand Canyon into the Bible? I want people, this is a wrong question to ask. You don't fit dinosaurs into the Bible. You don't start with man's observations out here and try to fit it into the Bible. If we understand the Bible is a revelation of God who knows everything, then it's the foundation for our worldview. So, see if you can do this real quickly. The word dinosaur was invented in 1841. People say to me, why isn't the word dinosaur in the Bible? Same reason the word email is not in the Bible. Okay, that's an easy one, right? It was invented in 1841. The word dinosaur applies to a group of land animals. They were land animals, not sea creatures, not flying creatures, land animals. It had specific characteristics of, of, of um, feet, the legs down under them like a cow or a horse, so they walked like that, not like lizards today, certain structures in their skull. But the Bible says God made the land animals on day six. Therefore, dinosaurs were made on... Exactly. Did dinosaurs live with people? Well, who was made on day six? Adam and Eve. And land animals were made on day six. Did dinosaurs live with people? Yes. What did they eat before sin? Genesis 1.30 says all the animals were... Vegetarian, exactly. Some people say, but T-Rex had sharp teeth. He's obviously a meat eater. Just because an animal has sharp teeth doesn't mean it's a meat eater. It just means it has sharp teeth, exactly. And there are many animals today that have sharp teeth that eat mainly plants. And you give you lots of examples. Could dinosaurs have died before sin? 
No, because there was no death before sin. Could you have dinosaurs with brain tumors and cancer before sin? No. Okay, so that had to come after sin. Two of each kind of land animals, the Bible says, two of each kind except dinosaurs went on the ark, right? No, it says two of every kind. Two of each kind of dinosaur went on the ark. How many dinosaurs were there? Hundreds of names. How many families are there? Actually, there's only 50 families of dinosaurs. We'd say less than 50 kinds of dinosaurs. Do you know the average size of a dinosaur from the bones we find on earth? The average size of a dinosaur is the size of a German shepherd dog or a sheep, something like that. We get the idea that all dinosaurs are great big monsters. Wrong. The biggest dinosaurs were the sauropod kind. Most of the other dinosaurs weren't that big. Did you know there were elephants as big as T-Rex? Many dinosaurs are as small as chickens. Some were smaller than that. See, we have the wrong idea about dinosaurs. Two of each kind went on board Noah's Ark. Even for the sauropods, dinosaur eggs, the biggest one that's ever been found, is the size of a football. So even a 100-ton sauropod came out of an egg the size of a football, just like a big alligator or a crocodile comes out of an egg you can hold in your hand. Now, God could have sent young adults on the Ark for sauropods, but you know what? Adults could fit anyway. Two of each kind went on the Ark. There was plenty of room. Then what happened? Those that didn't go on the ark drowned, many of them turned into fossils. That's where your fossils come from. How old are most of your fossils of dinosaurs? We'd say probably 4,300 years or younger because they were deposited during the flood. Then they came off the ark and spread out over the earth. What happened to them? Well, they died. Why did they die? You know, people say to me, how come the dinosaurs became extinct? Do you know how many animals have become extinct? That's why they have endangered species programs. <laughs> you, you ask a scientist, why do they have endangered species programs? We're losing all these animals. You mean not just dinosaurs? No. Oh, okay. And then you say, what happened to, why do animals become extinct? Why do animals become extinct? Are you stupid or something? Diseases, genetic problems, killing each other, climate issues, people clearing land, whatever it is. Oh. What happened to the dinosaurs? We don't know. You put dinosaurs alongside of Adam and Eve, sin and curse of the fact of the world, the flood of the fact of the world, they, and as they spread out over the earth, the dinosaurs died out like, like some other animals. What on earth is the problem? It's not a mystery. And by the way, why do you think we have dragon legends all over the earth? You know why there are flood legends? The American Indians, Fijians, Hawaiians, Eskimos. You know why they have flood legends? Because there was a real flood, Noah's flood. They handed down the account and changed it. That's why there are flood legends all over the world. You know why there are dragon legends? Because they had encounters with creatures. They've actually drawn pictures, carvings. You can see them in history, and many of them look like some of the dinosaurs. Why would an evolutionist mock at that idea? Because they believe dinosaurs died out 60 uh, million years ago. They believe they roamed the earth from 60 to 200 million years ago. By the way, they mock at people who believe dinosaurs live with people. That is so stupid. Do you know how many animals we have today, creatures that are called living fossils? Heard of the horseshoe crab? It supposedly evolved 100 million years before dinosaurs, lived with dinosaurs, lived today, hasn't changed, forgot to evolve, and it lives beside people, and it lived with dinosaurs. See. Dinosaurs are used as an icon for evolution. That's why they so mock at you if you believe they live with people. And you know one last little thing? You know what really gets me? Many of our children's books, and even churches on their kindergarten's walls, have Noah's Ark looking like this. An overloaded bathtub with giraffes stinking out the chimney about to sink at any moment. 
people, Noah's Ark looked more like that. It was a real boat. It was a real ship. You know what? The world mocks at the people who believe in Noah's flood and Noah's Ark. Why help them teach our children it was a fairy tale by making it look like that? We need to sink those arks and teach them about the real ark. Well, okay. There's lots of... Oh, one last thing. Is there any mention of dinosaurs in the Bible? Well, not the word. Here's the interesting thing. I believe there's a just dinosaur. I believe there's a creature described in the Bible in more detail, more than just about any other creature, and I think it could be a dinosaur. Job chapter 40. Look at Behemoth, which I made with you, God says to Job. He's, everything about him is big and strong, and he's the first of the ways of God, the largest land animal God made. He moves his tail like a cedar. And then you read in the, in the NIV study Bible and commentaries stupid comments like this, possibly the hippopotamus or the elephant. <laughs> Behold, Behemoth, there he is, has a tail just like a cedar. Wow, look at that. There it is. Wow, can't be. Must be a hippo. Behold, Behemoth. Look at that. That's a tail like a cedar if ever I've seen. Oh, look at that one. There's a cedar tree. You know, I say to kids, there's a tail like a cedar. Do you think it fits a hippo? Think it hits an elephant? How about this one? You know what? It actually just fits a description of a sauropod dinosaur. Why would we not say that? Because we're influenced by the world to believe in millions of years. Well, there's so much else we can do. We just run out of time. And as I said this morning, here's the bottom line. There's a battle been going on since Genesis 3 between God's word and man's word. And you know what? Evolution has been used in this day and age. In millions of years and evolution has been used to convince generations of kids the Bible's not true. And we wonder why we're seeing moral relativism uh, across the nation.